podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick and joining me as always is Mr. Carol Matchett. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Just uh, and one sort of game and then we a, a few fit people come back. Yes, so Liverpool will face Derby County in the EFL Cup tonight. Uh, that game can take place and none of us really care. Uh, we are going to look today at Liverpool's last league game before the Premier League break for the World Cup. That game is against now managerless Southampton. Carl, there has been some talk that Nathan Jones of Luton Town could be the man to come in and replace Ralph Hasenhutl, who was dismissed after the 4-1 defeat by Newcastle at the weekend. Do you have any thoughts on Nathan Jones, who's done well at Luton but failed quite badly at Stoke? Do you think there could be a new manager bounce, or if he's not in place, that no manager bounce that we saw Aston Villa have when, having escaped the horrors of Steven Gerrard as manager, they walloped Brentford? Yeah, I mean, it could go either way. I mean, I'm not 100% sure on, on Jones. I mean, I know a few of the Stoke fans too said that they were not impressed by things which happened and basically weren't made. But also, I think it's probably important to note that Stoke as a club were probably not that well set up for, uh, let's say, a bit more of a trying to be a progressive manager coming in uh, and trying to change you know, quite a culture of the club and plenty of other things which had to be done and I think you know it's fairly evident that struggled since they went down and even in the couple of years before they went down to be honest so I'm not going to say yes or no just over one job on Luton I'll be perfectly honest I, I don't watch Luton I, I very rarely watch championship games at all so I know he's spoken of very well quite a few of his players have said he's a good coach and that seems to be something that they focus on as a club when they're bringing in mm. uh, new managers just more than anything, the coaching and the ability to get the best of the people, obviously, that they do bring. Them. So, the profile, I'm definitely not against seeing a manager in the Championship get a chance in the Premier League without having to get promoted themselves first. Uh, you know, it doesn't yeah. happen very often, to be honest. So, that's, that's quite a, an interesting and an exciting thing. Um, I suppose there's loads and loads of possibilities of managers if you want to go overseas. But again, I think it's not the worst thing to to have someone from within the domestic game, whether that's a UK person or not, but I'm just saying from within already in the English game coming in and given a chance at a higher level, I think that's a a good thing. So if that's who they take, I think the timing is curious, to be fair. If they don't get him in before a Liverpool match, then kind of ask what was the point of not letting Hassan Hootel see it through. I suspect there will be quite a few teams attempted to do it, not just in the Premier League, but... You know, across the, the, the top European leagues, to get that time of year, a, a little bit more time training and practice and to bed in and all the rest of it. But by that same count, you're not going to get the new manager bounce. You know, remember we saw uh, Ranieri at Watford against Liverpool last year, for example, came in at the start of an international break, two weeks training, you're not going to get a bounce. You know, that's not a, a manager impact after just being there for a couple of days and people sort of fighting for it. So even less on the other side of the World Cup. Maybe for one game they'll get it, but. It's not that much of a, a bounce, really, let's be honest. And given the, let's say, tight nature of the Premier League at the uh, the, the wrong end of the table, which you know, Liverpool have managed to get themselves away from last week. So, yay for uh, it, It's not a, a massive thing, is it? If you win or you don't game at this stage of the season, I think it's, what, three points separating 12th down to the zone. So, 
it's not that much at this point. Yeah, it's very, very tight. Even, I mean, even from Crystal Palace, who are 10th on the same points as us, to Southampton in 18th, there's only seven points. So, you know, a couple of results here and there can really change things. You look at Aston Villa, they win a couple of games, they're up to 13th. Leeds win a couple of games, they come from the relegation zone, um, second bottom, bottom briefly, uh, they're now 12th. And you have direct us, directed us in this way, so I'm just going to briefly take you on a little tangent. Nottingham Forest gave Steve Cooper a new contract, their bottom of the league, so he looks safe. Wolves have just sacked their manager. They've brought it, well, they sacked him a few weeks ago. They've brought in Lopetegui. I want to get your thoughts on him in a sec. Southampton have just sacked their manager. Bournemouth have sacked their manager and are awaiting... I don't know, a a message from above before deciding who they want to give the job to. Everton, West Ham and Leicester still have the managers they started the season with. Aston Villa have changed their manager and Jesse Marsh has been under a lot of pressure. If I said to you, which of Everton, West Ham and Leicester have the same manager coming back out of the World Cup break as they have going into it? Who would you say is the most likely and the least likely? Most likely West Ham. I think it's it absolutely must be the case that David Moyes has done enough there over the last 18 months um, to, to show that he should be given five months of rubbishness or whatever it is to, to turn that around. And, you know, he's still going well in Europe with them and everything as well. Their season is not just restricted to trying to finish in the top half or whatever it is. Least likely, I still think it's Brendan Rodgers. I mean, I know obviously they've improved now and they've got, what, four wins out of the last five in all competitions, but the situation as a whole feels a bit more precarious there in terms of didn't get the back and he wanted in the summer, squad has quite a bit of a turnaround, um, end of the season they're going to lose a couple of key players, that sort of thing. So it still feels a little bit flimsy there uh, outside of results on the pitch. Everton? I don't think that Lampard's like in trouble as such with the board or anything like that, but undeniably it's not been very good. And also last night uh, the League Cup came at the end of the 4-1 defeat to Bournemouth, one of the only four teams below them in the league. There were a few dissenting voices, let's say. I'm mm. not going to outright call them boos because I don't think that that's entirely what all of them were, but definitely uh, displeasure, let's say. No, the boos were just Everton singing their the most noted song in the Just Everton. the anthem. Yeah, that's it. Just getting the anthem belted out. Tell me this, though. Stephen Gerrard lost his job after 40 games. Lampard has managed Everton for 37 games. Gerrard, in his 40 games, won one more game than Lampard has so far at Everton, drew one more game, and lost one more game. So how is it that Stephen Gerrard is out of a job and Frank Lampard isn't under pressure, considering Everton were better off when Gerard, when when Lampard took over, then Villa were when Gerard took over. How is that the case? That well, he's not under two any pressure. There. Two answers there. Quite easy is um, expectation from the board, and we know that Everton's are, let's say accommodating to underachievement, or at least they have been for the past. Uh, Embracing of underachievement. Yes, yes, that's something to be cherished at times, isn't it? Uh, Villa are obviously much more ambitious and, and aggressive in what they're trying to do, so that would be the main one. Uh, the other one, I think, is probably it is still a relevant thing. It's fan backing, isn't it? I think a lot of Aston Villa fans were quite against Gerard from quite early on this season. Not necessarily right from the start. I think there was excitement initially and. Certainly when some of the transfers were made and that sort of thing, it was the Gerard allure and all that kind of thing. But the football wasn't good this season and they did quite quickly go against that. I don't think all the Everton fans have. For starters, they've never had any good football to, you know, to, to, to compare it to anyway. So when it's defensive dross and they're not really doing too much going forward, there's still that. Secondly, a lot of excuses were made earlier this season, weren't they, about the fact that Everton didn't have a number nine starting despite having obviously Solomon Rondon on the bench and choosing not to do anything other than sign uh, Neil Morpé, who has played for the you know the only Premier League team in history to nearly score minus goals in the last couple of years in Brighton. Um, 
so these are decisions they've made. Calvert-Lewin was out injured. I think they've sort of given him a, a bit of a pass on that. And there have been individual improvements. We've talked before about people like Iwobi this year have done much better. Uh, Nathan Patterson, for example. The whole excitement around uh, Anthony Gordon for about, what, three weeks earlier this season when he was running fast and doing things like that. That was fine. Um, so I think he's been given a bit of a longer pass by the fan base than Gerard did at Villa as well. So combine those two... Just the fact it's Everton, you don't expect them to do anything anyway. I would say another 30% of time on top would put them on par with how long I would think they would get. It's magnificent, really. Everton's next three games are Bournemouth away, who just spanked them last night. Now, it was largely heavily rotated 11 versus heavily rotated 11, but it was an embarrassment for Everton. That Then they go into the break. They come out of the break and they face Wolves. And that's going to be the first game in charge for Julian Lopetegui. Now, he will miss the new manager bounce factor, but he's also a significantly better coach than Lampard. And then they go to City. So two away games. Everton have only won two away games under Frank Lampard. And the one home game is against, an outstand- I believe, an outstanding manager. I think Lopetegui is outstanding. I think he's had a really bad season this year with Sevilla that I think there were multiple reasons for. I think they had a poor summer, losing key players and replacing them with less than ideal fits or young players. I think there's probably a time limit on how long you can manage at Sevilla as well. And obviously he had the distraction of his father being unwell. What do you think are Everton's chances of winning two of those three games? And then give me your thoughts on Lopetegui. Uh, minimal to none in Everton winning two games at all. But, you know, it's across a long, long period of time there and a lot can happen. I mean, we keep talking about uh, people who are going to come back to full fitness across the World Cup and all the rest of it. We shouldn't forget the other side of it in what is basically going to be a mini pre-season. We do sometimes see players pick up injuries and muscle strains and all the rest of it in pre-season as well just by the you know the nature of trying to overexert themselves or, or the extra physical work or anything like that at all so it could still happen that way around as well so i don't think that there's a massive reason to just say everton are going to be improved with extra coaching time which is not huge huge strength or in terms of uh, experience and know-how at the very least with that coach and staff lopetegui I mean, Spain as a whole, La Liga is not exactly renowned for its um, longevity, let's say, in terms of how long coaches are at a club. Uh, I don't think that Spanish football is very conducive to being long-term at a club at the minute. It has been for quite a while. I do suspect that he will improve the Wolves squad in terms of of organisation and the setup that he wants. He very quickly got Sevilla playing the way he wanted to. And at their peak, they were pretty good. They were... I would say the third best team for a, for a good period of one season, but they just couldn't really sustain it for any longer than, you know, let's say five months or so, something like that. So I do think that the players are there. I do think he will do better in terms of obviously Wolves' problem position is number nine and has been for quite a while. I think he'll do better with the options they have there than... Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well... Over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to AnfieldIndex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Uh, Nuno did and that uh, Bruno Lage did as well. So I think he'll make more use of, let's say, whether it's Pedro Neto next year as a number nine or Gerdes as a number nine or playing two of them together, uh, which is something that I don't think Wolves did enough of. So... I think there's reason for optimism there. They did have an absolutely stinking first half of this season, obviously, before he's now been replaced by Jorge Sampaoli, uh, which should be 
capable of fireworks there. Sevilla and him together is something I'm looking forward to seeing. I think it will go spectacularly wrong. But, you know, across the course of the season, maybe he does enough to get them back into the top half or whatever. Up until this weekend, if anybody's not been sort of closely following Spain's top flight, Sevilla were in the bottom three and even before this weekend in the bottom two. They've just got out of the relegation zone with a a draw in the derby uh, last weekend and they've got uh, Real Sociedad tonight. That's the last round of matches before the World Cup in Spain. So he's left them in a, a pretty poor position, but... I think he also elevated them to above where they were when he joins them for, for quite a long part of that. So I don't think his you know, reputation is too diminished by what's happened in the last like 10 games or so of this season. I think it's just run its course. And like I say, Spain is not generally conducive to long, long periods at one club. So if he does pretty well with Wolves, I would say finishing 13th or above this season. I think that sort of shows that he is still perfectly fine in terms of uh, long-term as a very good coach, probably be spoken about for for bigger jobs again on the back of that. Uh, But, you know, if he can stay at Wolves for at least 18 months, I'd say the end of the season and the next one, I think we'll we'll see a very, very different Wolves side, a lot more cohesive, a lot more identifiable with a way of playing. Um, There's no specific reason to suggest that any of the, let's say, Portugal players are going to jump ship. You know, a Spanish coach is not a billion miles removed from you know an Iberian uh, identity almost and culture at the club anyway. So I think from that side of things, it'll be fine. Um, and yeah, I, I do think he's a much better coach than some of the names directly above him in the table. Yeah, I mean, he's also had the experience of working in Portugal at Porto. So he, he does have some sort of, uh, you know, affinity with the culture and whatever else. Um, I, I, I think you look at his career, he did brilliantly with the underage teams for Spain. He was very unfortunate with Porto, came up against maybe the best Benfica team of the last 40 years. Um, did did well with Spain, but then obviously there was the big kerfuffle before the World Cup. The Real Madrid thing was doomed from the start. I think he's done excellently with, with Sevilla up until this season. But, I mean, Sampaoli's come in and in nine games only won two, so that does suggest that maybe it was a bigger problem than just the manager. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to him in the Premier League. I think having him, and I know you're not a fan, but I think you'll agree, having him and Unai Emery come to the Premier League to join teams that were in the relegation mix does just go a long way in showing the draw of the Premier League, the money available, and it strengthens the league greatly to have really, really good managers in the bottom half with, with clubs like Villa, with clubs like Wolves that have potential and, and do have ambition, I think it can only be good for the for the Premier League. Um, let's go back to Southampton then. So in the summer, they made a very big step with a youth focus in terms of their recruitment. So they bring in... Uh, the last, I'm going to leave the two I think are the standouts to last, but they bring in Gavin Basunu from Manchester City. I think he's a good goalkeeper. He's not had a great season so far, but it's been a bit turbulent there anyway. Matthias Liz, they've loaned him out. He's another young goalkeeper. Joe Arebo from Rangers, who impressed everybody during his time there. Sekou Mara, who looks a very, very exciting at- young attacker. Now, Arebo's a little bit older. As is Duja Coletta Carr, experienced European proven central defender with international experience. Left out of his World Cup squad today. Left out of the World Cup squad, probably in part because he hasn't been a regular for for Southampton. Um, Bring in in Samuel Odozi, really exciting young winger from City, and Juan Larios, who's an exciting young fullback from City. So. You know, you'd look at certain areas of the team and you think, right, they've got Basunu, they've got McCarthy, that's, you know, young keeper and experienced keeper, that's pretty good. They bring in Livermento last summer to go with Walker Peters. So that's a really good pairing at right back. Livermento obviously had injured, but he'll be back after the World Cup. Larius comes in to join Perot as the left back. So again, that's really strong. You've got Kaleta Carr joining Salisu, Lianco, and 
one of the two signings that's really stood out for me, uh, Bella Kotchup, in what I think can be a very, very good centre-back group going forward with the right developments. I think all of a sudden you can look at that keeper and defence situation and think, you know what, that's very appealing. It, it, it needs to be developed, but the talent is absolutely sensational. Especially, I think, Livermento and Bella Kotchup. I think those two in particular just stand out as two of the best young players in the league. In midfield, you've got club captain James Ward-Prowse. You've got um, Ibrahim Diallo, who they brought in two summers ago. And then probably the signing of the summer for Southampton, Romeo Lavia, who's 18 or just turning 19 soon, and looks absolutely at home starting in the league. Now, he's missed the last six or eight weeks, and that's kind of coincided with them going through a very rough time. But he looks a sensation. They could probably do an extra one in midfield, but they did bring in Ainsley Maitland-Niles on loan, who's a, you know, a good, reliable Premier League player. In the group behind the strikers, you've got Aribo, Stuart Armstrong, Sekumara, Musi Gineppo, El Yanuzi, Edozi, and Adam Armstrong is probably more of a second striker than an actual striker. Again, I think that's a really strong group. Now, it is tainted a bit by the fact that Theo Walcott is still there, but, you know, you live with that. I'd be looking at this at Hampton team, Carol, and thinking, if you get someone in who is good with youth development and you get him a striker who can score you 12 Premier League goals between now and the end of the season, I think this team has the potential to be very comfortable in the league. I don't think they'd be worrying about relegation if they had someone who could put the ball in the net and someone that was maybe a bit more of a pragmatist in terms of the tactical setup rather than Hassan Hootel, who was very stubborn in his approach. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we spoke about them at length at the beginning of the season and both of us really liked the work, but I said at the time, I really do worry for them and I, I picked them to go down to be honest um, on the back of the transfers because there's just not enough authority there I don't think there's not really an absolute you know vocal leader there's not really a, a tremendous organizer at the back I mean Lianco is probably what the most experienced one he's not an organizer he needs someone to rein him in basically so he doesn't go charging off to the channels and everything and he's probably yeah. the fourth best of the four center backs. yeah yeah absolutely by by a bit of a distance I would say even so I, I really think that they have struggled and made an error with the work that they did in not having not having let's say not not for quality and not for how annoyed it's going to make you either although that appeals a bit but three James Milners in the squad basically people who are going to be um maybe even a six out of ten every week or you know every third week when they play or whatever it is but not a four out of ten and costing goals all the time which is what they've had quite a few occasions. I mean, Bazuna has been unbelievable this season in goal with his shot stopping, but he's had to be because they make so many individual errors at the minute based on, obviously, a a really, really young group of players getting to know each other, uh, based on the fact that they've got a a defensive triangle there at times who are 18, 20 and 22 years old. I can't remember how old Sally Sue is now, 22, something like that, 23. You just haven't got enough game knowledge there to know mm. what's going to happen all the time, where it's going to be all the time. And the goalkeeper behind them is 20 years old as well. None of them are going to be screaming at each other. None of them are going to be absolute rock-solid pillars at this moment. You know, there was a game earlier on the season, I'm trying to remember who it was. I can't really remember. Bella Kotchup was unbelievably good. And Sally Sue was superb. And all of it was recoveries. Every single yeah. bit of the work that they did was recovery work. I can't remember if it was maybe against Man United or, or someone like that, maybe Man City even. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but they were brilliant for like a, quite a long time in that game. But it was just because they had to be recovering all the time, covering across behind the fullbacks, covering for each other in the centre, making last-ditch blocks and everything. They are absolutely superb defenders, but you need a better more composed presence either beside them or in front of them, protecting them. I mean, I don't think James Ward-Price has had a good season this year at all. No, I, really I think he's been awful. I, think, I genuinely think he's, he's been, been awful. Yeah, I think he's been so, so far below his best level. And again, you look at 
the last, what, three seasons or so, beside him has been Oriol Romeo. He has been a massive, massive miss for them because he's the one who is like a, a, a protector. He's the the sitter, the more disciplined player. He's restrained he's in his, his approach work. Yeah, he's a and big time talker. And I agree with you. I think Lavia is a brilliant player, and I've said that you know on, on our podcast already as well this season. I think he's had a really good start. Obviously, a little bit of injury, but considering he's you know, hadn't played in the Premier League up until this season and is still a teenager, really, really good with his recovery work with his. Uh, his retention, even his positional work has been quite good all the time. You can't expect an 18-year-old to do that every minute of every game, though. No. Alongside Ward-Prowse, who is obviously the more uh, adventurous one, who'll try and join up with the attack. Not good enough in attack to not be very, very good defensively with that amount of youth and inexperience and newly blended together partnerships. They're just not. And, and as much as I really do like that, Diamond, let's say, of Bazunu, Belakochap, Salasu, and Lavia. Between them all, I mean, you're talking minimal top flight games. Yeah, they're, they're children. They're actual <laughs> children. I mean, Belakochap has 10 games in the Premier League under his belt. Uh, Salisu has 65, but he's been at the club two and a half years. Um, Bazunu has 14, and Lavia has six. So you've got less than 100 Premier League games between the four of them, and we're in November of this season. I, I look at their squad, and I said this in the summer, I thought Ward-Prowse would have been better off in in that box midfield. I thought they would have been better off at Ward-Prowse as one of the two more advanced, because I think defensively he's quite poor. I don't see him as a leader in any way. And I think if you had played, now he's, he was injured, obviously, but if it was Lavia next to Diallo, Diallo's a little bit older, 23. He's a little bit more experienced. But he does show signs of being a bit yappy. And he's also a really good ball winner. He's got good positioning. He's got aggression. He is the type that will grab a hold of players and sort of drag them into the right way of playing and given that him and Diallo have a mutual language in French they could communicate a lot quicker now obviously Lavia can speak English but still it's not his first language I think if he was able to play with someone like Diallo in a two I think that would go a long way towards making them more solid in that central area if you put those two in front of the two young centre-backs maybe you get a bit more of a solid unit you could then move Ward-Prowse. We're, we're unlikely to see a box midfield. I'm not really sure what sort of shape um, Jones would play. I've seen him play a 4-4-2 and a 4-2-3-1 and a 4-3-3. But in a 4-4-2, James Ward-Prowse wide on the right in front of Kyle Walker-Peters, that's fairly good. And you know you're going to get at least good crossing from Ward-Prowse. And then you can get the fullback overlapping and Ward-Prowse can drop in a little bit. But I, I just look at this, this squad, Carl, and I, I see three players, three players who have scored more than 10 goals for the club. Ward-Prowse has 45. As we know, probably half, if not more, are free kicks or penalties. You've got Che Adams, who is a striker, has 26 goals in 124 games. That's not great at all. And then you've got Stuart Armstrong, who's got 18 from attacking midfield in 148 games. You just don't have goal scorers in the team. Like Walcott has eight in 60 games since coming back. Elianusi has eight in 66 games over, this is his fifth season. Now he did spend like one or two on loan, two maybe on loan with Celtic. Um, Walker Peters has four goals. He's a fullback. Adam Armstrong, the striker they brought in for decent money, he's got three goals in 42 games. Like, if you're not going to be great defensively, and when you've got as many young players as they have, you're not going to be great defensively. You've got to be able to score goals. The reason Brighton and Wolves until this season were able to keep their heads above water when they couldn't score enough goals, was that they could be good defensively. 
the reason certain teams in this league who've been bad defensively have kept their head above water is because they've been able to score a bunch of goals. You can't be bad at both ends. You just can't, or you are going down. You've got to be good at one end of the pitch. They're promising defensively, but they're still bad for the reasons you outlined. And they're dreadful in attack. Like They'll have a game where they'll score three, and everything clicks and it looks great. But then they have loads of games where they just can't score. Like, they scored, they, they, they outplayed Manchester United, couldn't score. Then they go and they beat Chelsea. Make no sense at all. Then they don't score against Wolves, they don't score against Villa. They get beaten at home by Everton, who are awful, because they can't score enough goals. They draw at home with Southampton despite outplaying them, because they can't score enough goals. They lose at home to Crystal Palace because they can't score a goal. They probably should have beaten Arsenal. They had a bunch of good chances in that game, but they can't score a goal. And that ultimately is what it's going to come down to for them because the defensive record is is bad, but not appalling. It's 24 goals conceded. It's bad. It's not dreadful. It's not Forest level. It's not Bournemouth level. You know, you look at, say, Leicester City as an example. Leicester City, I think, have conceded 25 goals, but they've scored 23. Brentford have conceded 24, but they've scored 21. Fulham 24, but scored 23. If you're going to concede a lot of goals, you've got to be able to score almost as many, if not as many. And that's where, ultimately, I think they've got to go out in January and address the issue. Now, who that's going to be, I don't know. Like, the, the the chap, I think Joe Shields was his name, who came in as head of recruitment from Man City and only seemed to be able to buy players from that Man City. He's now gone. And I don't know that City had a striker for them anyway. So they've, they've got to go and find a striker in January, by hook or by crook. Whether it's a loan, I don't know. But they've got to get somebody in who's going to get them some goals or... They are definitely going to go down because they will keep conceding goals because they're so young. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. I agree. I mean, I, I I think that they still need two in that attack and four, if you like. Uh, I think they need a generally better. I think they've got a very middle-of-the-road group in that um, wide forward narrow attack and midfield, the sort of collection that they have, they're mostly of the same sort of level. Um, you know, Jennifer, I had much bigger hopes for him than he has actually developed into in the end. Elianuzi was nowhere, and like you say, has suddenly come back and part of the team again after just being cleared and booted out, basically, and they didn't want anything to do with him. I'm surprised Sekumar hasn't been given more of a run. I really am. I mean, he wasn't like an every-minute player last year, but he, when he got chances, he was very, very dangerous in the box. His link play... Not too bad at all. Of course, it's not like the most refined, because again, he was 19 years old last season, but you get that with the game time and with more you play with people. And I would even say, I think Ainsley Maitland-Niles has probably been one of the better performers when he's been playing out on the right-hand side. Because again, he gives you a little bit more balance between the defence and attack. He's a much, much harder working player than, say, having you know, Theo Walcott out there or something like that. Mm. And his ball retention is better. It's, it's a lot better when he plays out there in terms of... He's also an experienced footballer, Carl. He's a, <laughs> he's a grown man. He's not a child. I, I, I do think that if they had uh, two less 
of the wide forwards they have, you know, Walcott and Elianuzzi, let's say something like that, uh, or one of their many Armstrongs were just no longer at the club, then <laughs> you, you start playing Maitland-Niles a little bit more. You look for a really good forward this January. If, you're, if your ambition, whoever it is comes in, um, Nathan Jones or whoever, if your ambition's just survive this season because we think that these young players we've got will be really good in a year, two years' time, you need to go out there and find which very good number nine around Europe is not playing for a very good club. Mm. Someone, you know, someone like, uh, I mean, let's keep it Liverpool related because it's easy. Divock Origi has barely got started at Milan. He had an injury. Yeah. He's been second choice behind Giroud, obviously. Uh, Rebic has played through the middle. Zlatan's going to come back in the new year. So someone like him, just say we'll take him on loan for the rest of this season. You know, the World Cup is done with by then. He's not in your team at the minute. You've still got him under a long contract. Just bring him in and promise to give him the games. And someone who can lead the line like that, who you know can score, let's say, half a dozen goals across the course of half a season, and support him with you know someone else coming in. Maybe they sign a younger player, an exciting player. Maybe Sekumara partners with him or something like that. Find a way to find the goals, basically, and have a little bit more solidity about the team in general. It would be really, really big for them for the future, because if they do go down, Livermento's not staying. People will be in for him. Belakotcha, no, I, I would have gone. Lavia has gone. Lavia, you might get away with just on the premise of first team football and his age. But or, or, but City, City have that buy that buyback clause, and I wonder if City might just go. Well, he's not going to develop there. We'll just buy him back and we'll sell him again. No, I do. They've you know? obviously passed it over a couple of times with people like um, Douglas Lewis and that kind of thing. Yeah, them back early, but possibly the first team football and his age plays in their favour there but you know not with enough of them that's the point isn't it it's not with enough of them again Bazunu you probably get away with it because it's first team football and yeah and he's, he's so young and he's a yeah. goalkeeper as well so it's going to be less there's less need I think but like that's the thing like if they go down I'm sure they have sort of looked at it and think well that's one of the reasons we'll buy these young players if we go down we have this really young team that we can keep developing and come back up and they'll be Premier League battle-hardened because they'll have been through a season of it and they'll have been through a season of the Championship, but they will get they will get picked off. Like, for me... to be there if they're in the Championship. Walker-Peters is definitely gone. He's definitely... But, but again, that wouldn't be as bad if they could keep Livermento. And maybe Livermento would look at it and think, well, I, I lost half a season with the ACL. Maybe I'll just stay and play and it's regular first-team football and then... When we come back up, I'll be I'll be you know more well rounded and developed. But Walker Peters would be gone. Ward Prowse would be gone. I, that might not be a bad thing. Um, but like I, I'd look at the team and say, well, if I could line up Bazunu, Walker Peters, Bella Kotchup, Salisu, Perot, I've got young centre backs, but at least my full backs are at, at least a little bit older and a bit more experienced. If I can put Maitland-Niles on the right or Ward-Prowse on the right and then Idozi or Gineppo on the left. Funnily enough, Gineppo looked decent at left back but hasn't looked good <laughs> in the wing this year. But if they are the left winger and then I've got Lavia and Diallo in the middle, at least then I've got kind of three centre midfielders who can all graft. One of them can play narrow and shifting out to give me a bit of width and a bit of supply. I've got a high and wide left winger and then I'll play Mara off striker A that I can get in this January. And then, like you said, look to bring in someone else. Maybe maybe someone with, you know, an older player who can maybe just give me that burst off the bench. Maybe there's somebody knocking around who's, you know, 30, 31, not getting a game currently at their current club who might want to come in and be a bit of a spark plug off the bench, like a a Danny Ings type, if there's somebody out there I could get to come in on loan and be that kind of player, it wouldn't take a whole lot. And you probably could sell Ward-Prowse in January if you really wanted to and just use Maitland-Niles on the right of midfield and not lose a whole lot. Because I've always looked at Ward-Prowse and thought, he's a really good set-piece taker. He's a really good crosser. He doesn't do anything else. Like, his in-game passing is okay, but not spectacular, considering how well he can strike a ball. 
I, I'd be okay with losing him. Now, you do lose the fact that he is the captain and he's one of the players with a long tie to the club. But if you could get 35, 40 million, and that could fund you bringing in one up front, one more in midfield, if someone is a bit more battle-tested, and then you go and get a lone player as that other attacker, you'd probably be better off. Yeah, there's definitely you know the skeleton of what you want there, and it is about adding the right pieces, but also about adding them at the right time. And like I said, I think they really did overdo it this year with going big for the future, fine, but you've got to get to the future, and they didn't do that bit. They've not done the bridge part well enough at all, and that's no. what's got them in this position and lost Hasenhutler's job, really. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't imagine that the transfer policy was his idea. I think that's very much come from the new owners, and obviously the people they brought in as as the recruitment staff. I mean, he won't be available now because he's playing a quite an important role for Juventus. But Arcadius Millic would have been a really good addition. Somebody like that, just a you know a goal scorer. Um, trying to think of other other strikers that could make sense to him. I, I like the Origi shout. I, I think he he fits there in terms of what he could offer. Ideally, what you want is to find like the next Papi Cisse or Demba Ba who comes in and just has like a crazy hot streak for six months. And then even if they fall off, as long as they've kept you in the division, they've done their job. But finding that player is, is always so hard. And, you know, you, you don't know what money is going to be made available. I'd imagine some will have to be because relegation is the worst case scenario for any club in the Premier League. And for Southampton, with new owners having, you know, bought the club not all that long ago, they don't want their asset value dropping significantly by being in the championship. And if you're bringing in a new manager mid-season to a relegation-threatened team, even if they're coming from the championship, I'd imagine they're going to say, well, you're going to have to back me a little bit here. You know, like, Nathan Jones would be looking at his situation at Luton and thinking, well, you know, we're only two points off the playoffs. We're in the playoffs last year. Do I want to go to a team where I could end up in the championship next season, where I am already, or do I want to stay at the club that I might actually get promoted with if things break my way? So, yeah, it is a tough call for them. It's a tough call for him as well. I know that's the draw of the Premier League, but, you know, he'll have to look at the situation as well and think, well, I could just as easily end up back in the championship next season and where am I going to be happier, Southampton or Luton? And I'm very happy here at Luton. So we'll wait and see what they do. They've obviously, like we've talked about, they're in the bottom three. Um, They've won three games so far, drawn three, lost eight, scored 12, conceded 24. Uh, Results-wise, they... Started the season with, I suppose you could call it a, a bit of a, a bit of an embarrassment at Spurs, where they went one up and then got absolutely walloped. They got a good two-two draw away to at home to Leeds, where they'd been two down and came back and grabbed a draw. They beat Leicester. Everybody was beating Leicester at the time, but the point was they came back from a goal down. They lost to United, but gave them a really, really tough game. They went one down at home to Chelsea, but came back and beat them. Then they lost four in a row. Wolves beat them, Villa beat them, Everton beat them. Those were bad results when you look at the positions of those teams. They got walloped by City, but that's you know neither here nor there. They drew it home to West Ham. They beat Bournemouth away. They got a, a great draw at home to Arsenal. Lost away to Palace, but it's not a bad result because Palace are a decent team. And then they got spanked by Newcastle at the weekend. I don't know if you saw the game, Carl, but Newcastle scored first and then Southampton missed two, if not three, great opportunities. Like, should have been a goal opportunities. And then within four minutes in the second half, it was over. Wood scored, Willock scored, game over. They got a late consolation. But then Bruno Gomerich went straight down the other end of the pitch and scored for the tune to make it 4-1. The 4-1 didn't really reflect the game, but it did highlight defensive errors and defensive frailties, how easy they are to play through, 
and the fact that they can score goals. Yeah, add all of those together, and it's not really a recipe for success, is it? Um, too many errors given up, too many uh, mistakes and decision-making at the other end. I think probably the thing that summed the whole game up was Almiron's goal, in that it was well-finished, which Southampton don't have, but also got a bit of fortune, which Southampton don't really have, in that he didn't try to take on the last defender in the way that he eventually he did. Fell over. <laughs> yeah, and also, it was obviously the defensive... I mean, it wasn't really a mistake, but it was, again, misfortune in defensive area, which mm. has happened a few times, let's say, uh, for Southampton. And that that whole like little passage of play that they had there for, for the opening goal was like everything Southampton don't have going for them at the other end of the pitch. And they'd already had an injury by then as well with uh, Larios going off after. He actually looked pretty decent to start with. He was having a, a good opening uh, spell to the game as well. So... I, I did watch it, and it was. I, I find it quite tough to watch Southampton because they've been quite stagnant. I think over the last couple of years, we talk about the exciting players that they have coming in this year, and you can see that they're good footballers, but they're not team at this point. And you know, again, all the reasons that we've already gone over, and it's been chop and change in midfield. Maitland Niles started centrally in this game after being on the right before as well. So again, it's a change in the middle, but again, there's not really a single holder there. You know, you're not suddenly looking at Maitland Nars as being your defensive midfielder. He's at best a box to box. He's probably not in a double pivot, an ideal centre mid anyway. Not at this stage anyway, even though he wants to be. And I think this that first half really just summed up everything Southampton have been. It's it's quite predictable in terms of the build up play, but without being incisive enough to be very, very good. It's quite rigid in defensive positional work, but without actually being totally focused all the time in that position. Yeah, there's no discipline. No, there's not at all. So you can see how they're trying to play, and that's a good thing, but they're not quite doing it all the time in either half of the pitch, and that's very, very problematic. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Bella Kotchup has really stood out for this season is his ability to carry the ball. And I know I've, I've seen a lot of Liverpool fans look at him and think, well, geez, could he be a Joel Matip replacement down the road, you know, with that ability to step out from defence and break the lines with his, with his carrying. Um, and it has been impressive. What, the problem is that when he does that, the right back is also playing right wing. And when Bella Kotcha loses the ball or passes it and someone else loses the ball, there's about 40 yards of space in behind them. And poor Salisu has to, like, trundle across and try and cover, which leaves just him and the left-back, who could well be 40 yards up the pitch as well. Like, there's been moments where they've got turned over this season, and it is just Salisu, all by his lonesome, stood in the middle of the pitch, with no cover either side, and runners going both ways. And it's a simple ball over the top, and he can only pick one. And then you get all these other players who are chasing back to try and get into some sort of defensive position. But you can take the best defence in the world and if they're continually having to chase 40 yards towards their own goal, they're A, going to make mistakes, B, not always going to be consistent in that effort to get back, and C, it's going to be chaotic because you're going to end up with people in bizarre positions. Like, for example, there was a game, I want to say it was... I want to say it was the City game. It might not have been the City. There was a game they played that I watched where they got countered. And as they set into their defence, having all got back in position or into positions, Salisu was the right back. The right back was at centre back. The left back was at centre back. And Bella Kotchup got back to play almost like a left back holding midfield type of role. And no one knew what they were meant to be doing because none of them are familiar with those positions. And they got played through and scored against. And I, I like Hassan Hootl. I, I do. I think he's a decent, a decent coach. But I think he has done, overall, quite a poor job there in terms of building any kind of defensive structure and instilling any kind of real discipline into the team. Like you mentioned the word rigid, and I think that's right, but I don't think he's done it with any sort of 
any sort of real game plan. Like, there's no defensive rotations. There's no, you know, you go, I drop. You step, I cover. There's none of that. It's just all, we'll defend 1v1 and we'll hope for the best. It's a little bit Bielsa like that. And it's just not going to work in this division. No, and I think the other thing on Hassan Hutel as well is that he never never really got this team to considering how long he had it in charge for. He never really got them to a point where they were like mentally very, very strong, never really got them to a point where they were, you know, absolutely full of belief in themselves in terms of if they got a couple of bad results, they could just put an end to it and get a result somehow in the next game, scrap their way to a win, whatever it was. I mean we know about the the big ones where they had a couple of nine nils and all the rest of it, but it was more for me the fact that they would go for like quite frequently a month, six weeks without getting a win. Like even again now when he's been sacked, it's one win in nine games, and that happens quite a lot for Southampton. And like I say, when you're at a club for a considerable period of time, one of the you know, main benefits to that is it's supposed to be a gradual progression. You're supposed to get at the very least slowly better or in some instances or at some things and it just doesn't really seem to have happened uh, at no point do they really look like okay now they're going to push on and be you know challenging for seventh eighth two seasons in a row you know maybe they'll go for a month or two months and show good form and get some good wins or whatever but then afterwards it's the same again it's another six weeks without a win two months with one win it's just not it's not really enough in all respects it's not Intelligent enough, it's not determined enough, I don't find them aggressive enough. They're quite a nice footballing team, but they're not actually that good a footballing team if you compare them to um oh god, I don't know. A Fulham sometimes this season when they're when they're like properly on their game, their build up play can be really, really interesting in terms of how well Brighton have done, for example, over the last couple of years in, in making themselves better through footballing. Loads and loads of teams have done it better. Crystal Palace are a really good example, I think, in terms of a comparable size where they were in the league uh, the the summer that Hodgson left obviously the transfers that they've had to do the the focus that they've had in terms of youth um, they've done it a lot better than Southampton have and I, I do think a lot of that even if the transfer work is not on him a lot of the, the coaching and the lack of progression of the team is obviously on Hassan Hutel. Yeah like I, I do agree with that and I think Palace took a, a similar but less extreme approach with recruiting young players, but they also made sure that they brought in, you know, a proper leader in Joachim Anderson. Now, I know it's Gwehi who's the captain, but when you watch them play, it's Anderson who's pulling lads into position. He's the one talking. He's that sort of gnarled, dogged defender who has been around. He's got the experience. He's played in multiple leagues. And he's not afraid to, you know, to grab a hold of someone and drag them five yards deeper. Mm-hmm. He's not afraid to ball at his fullbacks until they get back in. In the lines behind and in front of him as well, McCarthy, McCarthy, you know, not immense players, but the the shouting, but talk, absolutely, yeah, working, Lord, absolutely. They'll go through fine. someone, yeah, and even Guaita behind them. Again, we just spoke about yeah. Bazuna. Bazuna is a much better shot stopper and has a a higher ceiling than Vicente Wade ever had, but he has the experience. He knows what's going to happen in yeah. match situations. It's a big difference. I mean, maybe it just maybe you just need to empower these people. Maybe you just need to sit down with someone like Basunu and just say, look, this is your defence. Do not be afraid to fall out with them. Open your lungs and fucking roar at them when they're not in position. Let them know where they're meant to be. Now, he doesn't necessarily have the experience to know himself exactly where he wants them to be, but he knows roughly where he wants his defensive line. But, you know, you look at the recruitment from when Hasselhutten took over. Che Adams came from the championship. Gineppo was very young. Danny Yings is probably the biggest success they've had in terms of the the return that he, he gave them in terms of goal score. Danzo was an unproven player in the Premier League. Walker Peters, very young. Jacob Maddox, very young. That was his first summer. Um, in his second summer, they bring Walker Peters in a permanent. Again, he's still young. Salisu's a kid. Diallo's a kid at that point. Uh, they bring in Walcott in a free. He was washed, well past being useful. And they bring in Taki Minamino on loan. And as with a lot of young loan players, it was just 
it was doomed to failure because, or not young loan players, but loan players, because he knew he wasn't going to be staying there. So they knew he wasn't going to be staying there. So there was no real connection and no real commitment. Uh, last summer, they bring in Walcott on a permanent deal, moronic. Roman Pro, good player, early 20s, had a bit of experience, but he'd never played in England before. Uh, Ollie Lancashire, kid, Simu, kid, Livermento, kid, Armstrong, championship, Thierry Small, kid, Leanko, bit of experience, but again, he'd never played in England. Willie Caballero was brought in to be the third-choice goalkeeper uh, for an emergency situation when everybody else got injured. Uh, Nico Lawrence is a kid, and Armando Broglia on loan, kid. And then this summer, it's the exact same thing again. You know, you're bringing in Basunu, kid, Liss, kid, Belakotchup, kid, Lavia, kid, Aribo, hadn't played in the Premier League, a bit more experience, but hadn't played in the league. It was a big step up from Scottish football is basically League One level bar Rangers and Celtic. Mara Kid, Kaletikar experience, but again, not in the Premier League. Idozi Kid, Larius Kid, Jack Stewart Kid. The only players they've signed since Hassan Hootle took over who weren't past their best and had Premier League experience, Danny Ings and Ainsley Maitland-Niles on loan. Danny Ings worked out really well. And as you mentioned, Maitland-Niles has been one of their better players this season. Like There might be something in that, that lads that know the division a little bit are worth bringing in when you're going and recruiting all these young players. Like One of the things I think Palace spoke about it when they signed Anderson is the main reason they went for him is they were so impressed by what they'd seen the previous season when he was at Fulham. So he knew the division. He knew what was going to be needed. And he had experience playing with a younger centre-back, Tosin at Fulham, and then uh, Gwehi at, at Palace was to be the partner. Like That kind of signing makes a bit of sense. This is what they should have done. Like I'm all in favour of the recruitment they've done, but there needed to be a couple more Maitland-Niles types, even on loan. He was un- available last season on loan. They could have brought him in. They didn't. You know? There's, there's a, a few others knocking around the division that you could have gone and got that aren't top players. Like, just as a name, and I'm, I'm not suggesting they should have signed him, but Ross Barkley. Ross Barkley would have been a decent signing for them to bring in with his knowledge of the division, with his experience at top clubs, knowing what relatively decent standards are, decent positional sense, come in and just be a bit of an organiser. You mentioned bringing in a Milner. And again, that would have been clever. You know, Fabian Delph, as an example, he's, I think, retired now. But you're telling me he wouldn't have taken a two-year contract from Southampton on decent enough wages to go down, live on the South Coast for a couple of years, play semi-regularly, an Ashley Young type of role. I I guarantee he would have taken it. He retired because he had no offers. He's still only 31, maybe, Fabian Delft, 32. But he could have been a backup left back, depth in midfield. But he'd be most important on the training ground, in the dressing room, as a voice. And the other thing as well is four of those summer signings, Basunu, Lavia, Edozi, and Larius, they all know him because he was at City. And he was looking at doing his coaching badges when he was at City. So I guarantee you he's taken at least a couple of them in a training session in the past. Someone like Fabian Delft, he's he's a bang average player. He always was a bang average player. But he would have made a huge difference to that team. There's definitely a lot of ways they could have gone about it. I think even just without going away from the ethos that they obviously want to have in terms of their culture and the transfers, but just add to it a little bit. And you don't have to even throw money at it. Like we've said, there's there's free transfers available all the time of that kind of player. You only need to add, what, two maybe? Maybe just one each summer and keep that sort of regeneration going so that when one of them has, has been there sort of two years, maybe three years, if they do particularly well, then they exit and somebody else is already there, haven't been there for two yeah. years. You need that continuity to help these newer players, the younger players, get to the point where they could be. You know, I'm no fan of them, but like two years ago, Adam Lallana was leaving Liverpool. Adam Lallana was at Southampton for 
14 years or something like that. You're telling me he wouldn't have gone back there? I can't believe for a second that he wouldn't have jumped at the chance to go back. And he might not have contributed much on the pitch. He certainly hasn't for Brighton, bar obviously last weekend's game against Wolves. But his professionalism, his experience, his knowledge of the inner workings of a big club, the standards that they set at a big club, those type of signings would have been invaluable to them. And I, the, the Delphine just stands out to me this summer because he is he's 33 in two weeks. But again, I, I just can't believe he would have turned down two years on 60 grand a week to come in and play 20 times a season. With maybe only 10 of them are starts. I can't believe for a second he wouldn't he would have turned that down. Even with the injuries and stuff, just having him around I think would have been very beneficial. But like you said, there's always there's all every summer there's a couple of those type of players that have never been standouts or anything like that, but they've been at big clubs, they've got years and years of experience in the division, they know what it's about, they know how to manage their way through seasons and through games, and they know how to overcome adversity. They could be so helpful to a club like Southampton. Right, we've gone long on Southampton. Let's talk quickly about Liverpool, Carl. Do you think Liverpool go as strong as possible in this game against Southampton? Is this one where if you're fit and you're in the 11, you're playing? Or is there a possibility that maybe one or two get left out with the World Cup on the horizon? I bloody hope not. Absolutely hope not. I can't imagine why we would even remotely consider doing that given the season we've had so far and the position that we're in. I mean, if we were, say, if we were third in the table or something like that and we were, I don't know, already nine, ten points off mounting Arsenal or whatever, but, you know, a comfortable four or five United in fifth or whatever it is, then maybe you can make a case for it because it's not a one-off game particularly damaging, but we have ground to catch up here. We've spoken about it before. The teams above us, outside the top two, are ridiculously inconsistent this season. It's it's not that big a gap. We beat Spurs, who are fourth. We're seven points behind them, but we have a game in hand. You know, it's it's not exactly going to be unheard of. For example, if Tottenham slip up against Leeds and drop more points, there is it. Tottenham have not been particularly good. Leeds have been a little bit resurgent of late. They're a very very difficult side to play against. It wouldn't be a surprise to me, for example, if that game ended in a draw. Why would we give up the opportunity to catch up a little bit? It would be insane if we leave anybody out for the World Cup. So considering, obviously, we don't really know what the the team against Derby is going to be at this point. We know a few of them who might be involved. Kweef Keller is going to start, that sort of thing. I think if we assume that Scott picks what 11 he wants against Southampton first, people who play against Derby would not be in the lineup. I think that's mostly what I would expect to be the case. So for Saints, I don't think it'd be very far removed from the team as against Tottenham, to be honest. So I agree completely. Um, I'm looking at tonight's game and thinking we can probably play 10 who wouldn't start against Southampton, we might have to play one who would, but in a different position. So just for tonight, I'm thinking Kelleher, Ramsey, Phillips, Gomez, Costas, a midfield three of Ox, Basetic and Jones, and a front three, potentially, of Elliot, Carvalho, and Bobby Clark. And Elliot is the only one I would say would be likely to start against Southampton of that group anyway. Because I could see Klopp playing the same, starting rather, starting the same 11 against Spurs. Sorry, against Southampton that he started against Spurs. Yeah, I do think it'll be that same 11. I think maybe the only thing I would suggest is that instead of Elliot starting, you have Clark and Carvalho as the two wider forwards or, you know, Jones left side and Carvalho and number eight or whatever mad thing Klopp wants to do like he usually does. But then for the forwards, you have one of them starting and one of them coming on in terms of the three seniors. 
Yeah, I mean, he definitely could. He definitely could start one one or two of the seniors. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Henderson starts tonight and then doesn't start against Southampton. I don't have him starting against Southampton. I have Elliot. So, uh, yeah, Elliot yeah. starts. And so I think Henderson will play tonight anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's about his level, League One. You know, we put him in against the, the lads he'll be good against. <laughs> I am joking. <laughs> um, so I mid- maybe maybe tonight we see a midfield three of Henderson, Basetich and Jones with Oxlade-Chamberlain on the right, Clark on the left and Carvalho as a false nine type. Um, and then for the weekend, it's Allison, Trent, Ebu, Virgil, Robbo, Harvey, Fab, Thiago, Darwin, Mo and Bobby. Yes. Largely at this point, yeah. I'm feeling like if Canate's playing, I'm a lot happier about the game. Yes, massively, massively, because it's not just that he's the best defender of the trio of him, Joel and Joe, but he's got that pace and physicality that allows us to be more aggressive, play a little bit higher up, shrink the space around Fabinho so he's not having to cover mass amounts of ground. I think he looked a lot better against Spurs. I think he's been good now in the last two games. And I think Ibu is probably the biggest reason for it because we play a little bit higher. Ibu's very, very happy to step forward and crunch somebody. Fab doesn't have to worry about balls in behind because Ibu has that recovery pace. He has that explosive first step to get out and meet things. And let's be honest, if you're going into a 50-50 with Ibu Kanate, you've probably made a mistake already because it's not going to end well for you. That boy is coming in and he is leaving you on the floor. Yes, including if he has to track you 35 yards uh, forwards into a a right-wing position first, apparently. Love seeing him wallop Harry Kane deep in Kane's own half. That's the type of thing I want from my centre-back. Right, let's do predictions then and wrap this one. I will go... I will go 3-1 Liverpool. I'm going a clean sheet. I'm going to go 3-0. Oh. I'm, I'm feeling... I'm not sure optimistic is the right word, but I think that Saints are a little lacking in direction anyway at the minute, and without a manager, you know, without too much time, even if they do have a new manager, I do think that if we get a first-half goal, I think we'll be all right. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. Um, they just don't have the firepower. That's the, the the bottom line of it, and they will make defensive mistakes. We just need to take advantage of them, and hopefully, Salah continues his good form, and Darwin maybe bags a goal against the defense that will give him some opportunities. Uh, we will leave it there. Then, thank you as always for listening. We will be back with something else later this week. Take care. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.